The Easter season recounts the preparation of Jesus as the Passover lamb and moves from the sacrifice on the cross to the celebration of a risen Savior. What did the cross and resurrection achieve? In a word, life. Christ's saving work on our behalf is the good news of eternal life. And this good news calls each of us to faith and repentance. Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Just as Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. Good morning and happy Easter. Thank you. The uh, celebration we've, we've been having this morning and celebration that's going on in um, I trust Bible teaching, Jesus loving, gospel embracing churches uh, around, around our city, around our world. What a celebration, what magnitude of celebration is Easter. And, and surely, surely a celebration of that magnitude celebrates a, a, a victory over something really, really bad. Surely as we, as we celebrate this victory, that which has been defeated must have been truly awful for the victory to be so great that this celebration makes sense. This morning I want us to, to look at the promise of Easter. And, and in so doing, look at the victory that, that Easter captures and the problem that Easter addresses. Now, before we get to the good part, we're going to have to look at some unpleasant things. And so, Roman numeral one, let's talk about the problem. Let's talk about the problem. I hope you have your outline. You can tell by your outline, I am more all over the place in the Bible even than I usually am. And so, the screens, I hope, behind me will be helpful to you. There's a pew Bible there in front of me. If you want to try to flip along, if you've got a Bible app, you'll be able to keep up. Um, if not, take the outline home, if I, especially if I say anything that causes you to want to go, hmm, I need to check that out. I, um, I have from time to time, I hear from people who say, I, uh, I don't agree with what you've said, but I'm digging deeper in my Bible. Uh, and, and I always count that a win. It is not my objective to cultivate your agreement with me. I am an old man and have in my wake all manner of people who have agreed with me and all manner of people who have disagreed with me. If a disagreement with me motivates you to dive more deeply into God's word, friend, I win. Because that's what I'm after for you. That you would be all the more a student of God's word. Roman numeral one, the problem. Letter A, we are all sinners. We are all sinners. Uh, Bible says it simply this way, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, I've been, I've been telling people about Jesus both in public settings like this and in private conversations for, for a long time. And I can count on one hand the number of people who've ever disagreed with that statement, that we're all sinners. People don't have any problem at all agreeing with the fact that there's, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. There's no question, I'm a sinner. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good old boy and I'm doing the best I can, but I'm a sinner. I always kind of go into the old southern good old boy voice. 
And the older I get, I'm turning more and more into a southern good old boy, so anyway. Uh, all of the various false gods of our culture, you know, Hollywood God, country music God, sports God, civics God, all of the gods we like to prop up in our, in our North America, all of them agree, well, yeah, we're sinners. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bloodless, painless, universal agreement. Yep, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, got it. But very soon after that agreement, Biblical truth begins to veer away from sort of popular understanding. Because if you look at letter B, not only are we all sinners, we're all big sinners. Well, now hang on a minute. No, I mean, I'm a sinner and all, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not a big sinner. Well, hang on a minute. If we're gonna think biblically, James chapter two, verse 10 says it like this. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point. And by the way, neither you nor anyone you've ever met has done that well. No one you've ever met, including you, has done that well to keep all of God's law except for one tiny little glitch. But even if you could do that well, look at what the Bible says, you've become guilty of all. Wow. See, God's law is a unified, perfect, holy entirety. It's a whole. It is a monolithic whole. And so there, there might be some comparative degrees of punishment, but there are no comparative degrees of guilt. And those comparative degrees of punishment are nothing to put any hope in. To, to have violated any of the law is to be a lawbreaker in the estimation of a holy God. And that is a eternally horrific thing to be. Not only are we all sinners, we're all big sinners. In fact, let her see, we're all evil. Wait a minute, Pastor Howard, evil? Yeah, yeah. It's a statement Jesus makes in Matthew 7, 11. For context, this is, this is embedded, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is speaking, it's an outdoor sermon, to a whole lot of people gathered on a hillside, probably somewhere on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. The kind of people he's talking to are the kind of people who hang around for a fairly lengthy sermon. They're, um, they're by implication in what he says in this verse, they're the kind of people who, who love their families and, and do nice things for their children. And Jesus makes an offhand statement on the way to another point he's making. But that offhand statement kind of, kind of tells you the tapestry of truth that Jesus is coming from. Listen to what he says. If you then, who are evil, and remember, he's not talking to the scribes and Pharisees, the arch villains of the gospel account here. He's talking to a crowd on a mountainside listening to his message. If you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, these people love their kids. How much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? By the way, you're evil. It's kind of the tone. It's not an arguable statement. 
It's, it's, a, it's a background assumption from the ministry of Jesus. These, these sweet people gathered on that mountainside who love their families and pay attention to his sermon are evil. So are you. So am I. Left in our natural state. Our needle is set to evil. But you know what? We, 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 even, if we, even if we take that truth in, here's what our tendency is to do. We want to we wanna carve out a comfortable place for ourselves in the thesis that, oh, okay, 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 but you know what? There are a lot of people that are worse than me. I'll tell you that. I know some rascals. I mean, I know some scoundrels. I know some really bad people. And if I don't know them, I sure know of them. For years, Gail and I have attended the 8 o'clock service. That's kind of our, our home service here at McGregor. Obviously, I'm often in the 9.30 and often in the 11. But Gail and I worship together and have for years in the 8 o'clock service. And some of my dearest friends are in that 8 o'clock service. And at 8 o'clock, I said... Some of y'all know me pretty well. You know you know someone worse than you. And they agreed. <laughs> there was absolutely no respect for the clergy in that eight o'clock crowd. <laughs> I got, I got a, a mean email from my homeowners association. Seems that my garbage cans, when they're not on the street, are insufficiently screened from view. That's the kind of troublemaker I am. I bet you never got a mean letter from your homeowners association. We want to take comfort in the fact that, yeah, I may be pretty bad off, but I tell you what, there's a lot of people worse off than me. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Word of God speaks to that precise tendency. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, letter D. Some people are worse than us, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Listen to what the Word of God says. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They are without understanding. What are they failing to understand? They're failing to understand that God's not going to grade you on the curve. When you stand in judgment, God is not going to rank you with all of the villains and scoundrels of all mankind. God is going to place you against the standard of absolute perfection encoded in his law and personified in Jesus Christ. And you're not going to do well. No one can. And there is, there is no comfort to be had in your awareness that you're not Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or whoever. Because see, our problem is us. Another characteristic that all those pop culture gods have 
is that that the the God of popular culture is sort of universally acceptable. I mean, pardon me, universally accessible. Kind of on your own terms. He's a, he's grandpa God. And he's kind of sitting in the rocking chair on the front porch of the old home place, just kind of waiting for the kids to drop on by anytime they can so he can give them a hug. That is not God as the word of God describes him. Not remotely. And, and, and the good news is, and we'll get to it, he is accessible. But he is not accept- accessible on your terms. Amen. He is not accessible in your timing. He is not accessible in whatever way you would wish to get to him. Isaiah 59, 2 says, our sin separates us from God. Listen to what it says. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He does not connect to you in relationship because of your sin. You have no means to access him that is attainable to you. You can turn over a forest full of new leaves. You can resolve to upgrade your moral code. You can be as ethically strict as you can possibly facilitate. But your sin has separated you from God with a barrier that cannot be breached by any initiative you can take. That's the problem. And our sin, letter F, makes us the just targets of God's wrath. God, who is utterly holy, completely righteous, totally just, has a zero tolerance, an absolute zero tolerance for sin. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 6, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, you know what covetousness is? Covetousness. In that same list with impurity and sexual immorality, covetousness is when you want something somebody else has already had. It's more popular name in our culture is the American dream. Ooh, that's quiet. We exalt greed to a virtue. How odd. The Bible calls it idolatry. Covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what things? The things listed in this paragraph. The wrath of God comes on who? The sons of disobedience. Those who live their lives outside of the one way 
they could be right with God. The wrath of God comes, but oh, there is good news. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has paid the price to satisfy the Father's otherwise unsatisfiable justice. Letter A, Roman numeral to the price, letter A, his death on the cross was for sinners like us. Isaiah 53, four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That is a certain and eternal healing. That's why, by the way, those who, those who would teach, as a footnote, those who would teach that this passage teaches that physical healing was the uh, physical healing for all God's people was the goal of his death on the cross are lying to you. They would have you believe that this verse says you will be healed if you have enough faith. Therefore, if you lack faith, that's the reason you're sick. If you just had enough faith, you'd be certainly well. That's not what this verse says. This verse makes that healing, whatever it's talking about, is an absolute certainty. One day you're going to wake up on earth to die that day if the Lord tarries. But if you know Jesus, in the moment that you die on earth, you'll awaken in the presence of God, certainly and absolutely and totally healed. That's what this is talking about. Not your bursitis, not your bronchitis, not your cancer. He will heal those one day for all of his children. He will healed. And this verse doesn't say they might be healed if they have enough faith. This is not talking about physical healing in the here and now. It's talking about eternal life. I shall conclude my footnote and move on. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The righteousness of God, letter B, demands satisfaction. The grace of God provides it. The righteousness of God demands satisfaction. And no amount of effort on your part. Look, I know you. You're the sort of people who come to McGregor on Easter Sunday. You clean up beautifully. And kidding aside, I know many of you have known Jesus for a long time. But if any among us this morning are trusting in our effort, trusting in the righteous resume that we have accumulated, the fact that we are by and large decent people, if that's what you're trusting, you're, you're, you're going to roast forever. Because the righteousness of God demands utter satisfaction. And there's nothing you have that's valuable enough to pay off the debt your sin has created. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe 
For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, it passed over former sins. It is to show his righteousness at the present time so that, here it is, so that he might be just. Look to the cross and see the horror of the justice of God. The bloody beaten body of Jesus. The object of wrath. The death of Christ, the result of the judgment of God poured out on Jesus on the cross. God being just and the justifier, the one who provides justice, of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God demands satisfaction. The grace of God provides it. Let her see. His love has made a way for all who will believe. Perhaps the most often quoted verse in the whole Bible, Jesus in a private conversation with a man named Nicodemus on a rooftop one night in Jerusalem. As the evening breezes blew, Jesus stated it like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The way the grammar of that simple statement is structured, that adjective eternal with life, because it's in parallel with that idea of perishing, that eternality applies to both. So to expand it a bit, would not die forever, but rather would live forever if they believe in Jesus. The proof? The proof of these spectacular claims that the death of Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God, the proof is the empty tomb. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. A little bit of a lengthy passage. To set the stage as the curtain comes up on this passage, it's Friday, late afternoon, Friday evening. The, uh, the, the man who's re named repeatedly in this passage, Pilate, is the Roman governor of the Roman Empire province of Judea. Israel is at this time under the heel of the Roman Empire. And Pilate is the highest Roman official in that whole region. He represents the authority of the Roman Empire over the Jewish people in the province of Judea. It is his death sentence that has been carried out by the crucifixion of Jesus. And when it was evening, this is on Friday, the day that Jesus has died now on the cross. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Governor Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, 
We remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. <laughs> I love this next statement out of Pilate's mouth. I have a profound appreciation for irony and a slightly twisted sense of humor. And I absolutely love Pilate in all of his Roman imperial puffery makes the statement, go make it as secure <laughs> as you can. Good luck with that. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now think about that. Roman authority wants that stone to stay in place. It's been real clear. Death. All the stones on all the graves are to remain in place. Power of nature. Dead things don't come back to life. That stone stays in place. Satan himself give anything he's got for that stone to stay in place. That's a lot. There is a whole lot of, of momentum and a whole lot of authority and a whole lot of even supernatural will that says that stone stays in place. And all that is quite strong. then the quite strong encounters the omnipotent. And when the quite strong encounters the omnipotent, the omnipotent wins every time. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. There's your big deal rock. It's an angelic lazy boy. <laughs> and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men, catatonic. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Notice he didn't say that to the soldiers. You boys be all as afraid as you want to be. If your mission is to keep that grave closed, yeah, you be afraid. I don't know if he actually said that. It's not necessarily in the text. I'm making stuff up. By the way, be careful when I do that, to have your Bible open and say, oh, that's just Russell and he might be wrong, but stay with the text, okay? He said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And down the centuries, the philosophers have philosophized, the intellectuals have intellectualized, the debaters have debated. The studiers of comparative of religions have published their studies. And oh, the earth has been filled with the words 
of people who want to argue their own take on the nuances and the subtleties and the mysteries. At the end of the day, it comes down to an empty tomb. What shall you do with the empty tomb? And you can quote your David Hume and Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Nietzsche and all of the other Richard Dawkins and all the other so-called intellectuals of this age and past ages. You must account for the empty tomb, which proves the magnificence of Roman numeral four, the promise. The promise. If you will believe, you will be forgiven and live forever. But letter A, belief is to be right out in the open. Right out in the open. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is, if the story of your life as you tell it is the story of one who is committed to following Jesus Christ as Lord, if your testimony, your story, your narrative is a narrative of Jesus Christ leading in your life, that's what it is to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But letter B, what is belief? What does it include? Because we have to be careful that that word belief can have a range of meanings. I, I believe that my car um, has an internal combustion engine. There's a very, very narrow list of things that I am reasonably capable of. On that list does not include understanding how cars work. I don't. I think I have owned four cars since the last time I opened the hood of one of them. I have no idea what's in there. I pay nice people to do nice things to it from time to time when the computer tells me they need doing. But I have no business opening the, well, it's not. I can add, I can add the fluid that squirts on the windshield. But you don't want to pour that fluid in the wrong hole. That gets bad and expensive, so be careful even with that. But I, 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 I believe it. There's an engine in there. I believe that if you head due south from the tip of Italy, you'll eventually get to Africa. I've never done it. I've never trusted it. I've never relied on it, but I've looked at globes and stuff. There's all kinds of things that I might believe that I'm not making use of. They've not got much practical impact in my life. You know what the Bible says in the book of James? The Bible says that demons, the fallen corrupted angels that wreak so much havoc in our world, demons believe everything there is to believe about Jesus and they tremble at what they believe. They've got a more sophisticated theological framework than any of us because they've been around longer and they pay really good attention. But they're not saved. So listen to me. Believe does not mean you can run the checklist of facts. I can run the checklist of facts about Jesus from, from Bethlehem and before 
to the empty tomb and after. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. I will even tell you that I think it's all true. Therefore, I believe, not so fast. Not so fast. Your intellectual agreement with the facts about Jesus is not belief that will change you eternally. What is belief? The standard that causes fallen men to be saved. What does belief include? Well, we get a little synopsis of it in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. Precious pair of verses. It's part of a sermon, a, a conversation, which includes a sermon Paul is having. On his missionary travels, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did any other single city. The, the church at Ephesus is in many ways sort of the crowning achievement of Paul's missionary career. It's, on the, it's near the, the western tip of modern Turkey. And Paul had spent years there in Ephesus. And sometime after he had left Ephesus, he circled back to Ephesus and, and met with the elders of the Ephesian church in a, in a nearby place called Miletus. But they're the Ephesus elders. And he's recapping to them a synopsis of his years among them. And he says during those years, Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So what's profitable? And teaching you in public and from house to house. I get it. That's the where. What's the what? What's the profitable stuff? Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Okay, I get that. That's the who. Everybody needs to hear it. But what's profitable? Here it comes. Testifying toward, testifying of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the message of the Christian gospel. That's what's Profitable, repentance toward God, loathe your sin. Come to the heartfelt position that of all the problems, big and small, the biggest problem in your life is your sin. And hate it. And turn from it. And ask for forgiveness of it. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him enough to follow his word. Trust him and him alone to lead you home. That is what is profitable. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the promise of Easter and we'll talk about it on Easter. And we'll talk about it on Mother's Day. And we'll talk about it on Father's Day and the 4th of July and Memorial Day, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that, dear friend, is what is profitable. Those are the components of saving belief. Amen. Amen. Why don't most people do that? And don't kid yourself, most people won't do that. Jesus said the, the way is narrow and few find it. 
that leads to eternal life. The way that leads to eternal death is broad and easy. Well, we read John 3, 16 earlier. Let's go a couple of, a couple of verses further. In the same breath as John 3, 16, continuing John 3, 17 through 19, Jesus continuing to speak. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is, is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness. Why? Because their works were evil. We started a few minutes ago being reminded that when viewed through the lens of divine holiness, the perspective of Jesus, which is eternally correct, we're evil. And we don't come to faith in Christ because we love our evil. My friend who loves your lying, you may have convinced yourself that you have some massive intellectual problem with Christianity. No, you don't. You love that you lie and think you're getting away with it. My friend with the porn addiction, you may think that you have some moral disagreement with some component of Christian history. No, your problem is you love your addiction more than you love the idea of freedom from it. My covetous friend, I took a cheap shot at the American dream a moment ago. Do as well as you can at whatever God calls you to do, but do not be motivated and driven by a desire to have what other people have. If you love that desire more than you love being saved from it, the word of God calls you an idolatry and you're loving, idolater and you're loving the darkness. Oh, that you would fall out of love with the darkness and fall in love with the one who is light, who has come into the world. And that you would come to believe that which is profitable, that you must repent of your sin have faith in Jesus Christ.